2: Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food related crime,
0: scandal, and fraud. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Becca. How's it going today? It's
2: going well. It's so
0: sunny outside. I know, it's warm. I can't wait to get outside after this. I know, me neither. We're doing this one Mm -hmm. pretty early in the morning so that we can enjoy the sun. Mm -hmm. You might hear the rasp in my voice. (laughs) because Just woke up. Yeah. But as we were saying, this one's a little bit different.
2: Yes. It's a little less food related, but it is food adjacent. And you see a lot of crossover between the things we're going to talk
0: about today and food. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that I love about this podcast is that as long as it has something to do with food, the industry, drink, we can talk about it.
2: We can talk about it, yeah. <laughs> Even if it's a bit of a stretch, it's up to us, really. And another super exciting thing that happened, which actually made me feel so proud, but one of our episodes made it onto
0: a course syllabus. woo How cool is that? It's an honor. Truly an honor. If you're a student that was forced to listen to this podcast... We hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We hope you enjoy it. (laughs) Students are
2: listening like, oh, couldn't this just have been a reading? (laughs) I know. Stop talking. Let's
0: get into the material.
2: (laughs) But it was our episode on organic food fraud Mm -hmm. for, for a communications class about GMOs and organic food in Canada. So really, honestly, that's one of my proudest podcast moments so far. Same here. Yeah. Truly an honor. All right. Should we do this? The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we
0: will be forever grateful. All right, so you asked me to talk a little bit about multi-level marketing businesses. So that's mm-hmm. MLMs. So I'm MLBs, s- as you just <laughs> Multi-level marketing <laughs> businesses, MLMBs. <laughs> but I'm just gonna call them MLMs from here on out. <laughs> okay, and I'm gonna start just by giving us a definition. An MLM is a legitimate and legal company that sells products or services through person-to-person sales. So an MLM employee is selling directly to another person, either online from their home or from the home of someone else. And here I kind of think about when I was younger, my mom used to go to like Tupperware parties and things like that at her friend's houses. And typically mm-hmm. somebody else would come and put on this party at somebody's house. Yep, absolutely. I remember Tupperware and I really remember Pampered Chef. Pampered Chef too, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if you decide to join an MLM business as a seller, the company may call you a distributor, participant, or contractor. These types of businesses can earn you money in one of two ways, and that's either by selling the products of the MLM business or by recruiting new members or distributors and earning commissions on what they buy and sell to other customers. So every member that you or your team brings in will become a part of what's called your sales network. And depending on the MLM structure, you may earn commissions on people within your sales network. So even if you didn't recruit them into the business yourself.
2: Hmm. I feel like that's where it gets a little... Uh sketchy, even though they are legal, completely legal, but it's this idea of recruiting new members and like that your
0: livelihood is reflected in how many people you can recruit. Absolutely. And I'll get into kind of what the difference between an MLM and a pyramid scheme is because there is a difference. Okay. Pyramid schemes are illegal, but MLM businesses are not. A pyramid scheme may look like an MLM business model in terms of its structure, but it will cost you and your recruits time and money and often ends up scamming individuals out of these specific resources. In pyramid schemes, you do not earn money by selling products or services, but by the number of individuals you recruit into the company. In both MLMs and pyramid schemes, you may be required to purchase a certain amount of product in order to participate, And back when I worked at the MLM company, Stella & Dot, as I mentioned at the end of last episode, I did have Mm -hmm. to purchase a starter pack of jewelry in order to sell it, which is interesting looking back on it. But um, Mm -hmm. I think it was about $400 or so. And I mean, I got to keep all the jewelry and I don't really have any regrets about it because it's nice jewelry. I ended (laughs) up making a little bit money in the long run and it was a decent experience for me. That's cool. Did you eventually make back more than $400? Um so I would say I probably came out even. Uh, I think I probably spent a little bit more than $400 overall because I ended up purchasing things to like host the parties and things like that. Right. Um, yeah. And to be quite honest, I'm happy that I did because now I have these like stands for my necklaces and earrings and things <laughs> which I wouldn't have had before and I wouldn't have never have thought to buy otherwise. But when so you cute. like go into like this part of my closet, it looks like kind of like a little store.
2: <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Yes.
0: Very organized jewelry.
2: But I guess you weren't Stella in Dot's top salesperson.
0: I was probably their lowest ranking <laughs> salesperson. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. In a pyramid scheme, you will likely be required to purchase inventory at regular intervals, even if you still have inventory that hasn't sold yet. If there's inventory at all, because sometimes there isn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may also be required to purchase products before receiving a paycheck or bonus, or be required to purchase training or marketing materials versus being given them complimentary. Right. Uh, In many cases, distributors in a pyramid scheme won't be able to sell enough product or recruit enough people to make money, and many will quit before making any income at all, uh, often losing that initial investment that they made. Hmm. So some telltale signs of a pyramid scheme include extravagant promises regarding earning potential, recruitment requirements, putting pressure on future recruits to join, thereby not giving them enough time to research the organization, and by being required to consistently purchase inventory if there is inventory. So some benefits to traditional legal MLMs include the fact that they are often extremely flexible. and. There might be some sales quotas in some MLMs, but in most cases, you can sell when you want to sell, which might be a great option for people looking for work-life balance, uh, people who want to work from home. Uh, The products are often ones that you would believe in if you're buying into the company anyways, and they might be ones that you would be buying anyways. And the initial investments are usually fairly low. And I say Mm -hmm. this just meaning that like, if you were to start your own business, an investment to start that business would be much more than the $400 that I paid.
2: Yeah, totally. But I think that's almost like part of the problem is that people without a lot of capital think it's a great way to go Mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, small investment. I don't have a lot of money. Let's do this. But then that little bit of money is actually a lot
0: to them and they have a really hard time making it back. Absolutely. And- I'm going to get into that right now Uh, because a document produced by Consumer Awareness Institute claims that less than 1% of MLM distributors make any profit. Wow. I would absolutely believe that. So this means that while these companies are technically legal, they may end up making more money off of you than you would ever make from them. And it is estimated that within five years of being a part of an MLM, 90% 90% of all individuals will have dropped out of the program. And within 10 years, 95% will have dropped out.
2: That is wild. And I was just doing some quick math. So 4% of people who are not making any profit are still staying in after 10 years, right? Because So if 1%, less than 1% are making profit, 95% are still in after 10 years. That leaves 4% of people that are sticking <laughs> sticking it out without any profit.
0: Yeah. And to be honest, I could see how it would be very easy to just kind of stick with the company, even mm-hmm. if you're just, just like making what you're putting into it. Because at least with Stella and Dot, I didn't have to do much. I honestly mm-hmm. don't even know if I actually quit the company. I might still be. <laughs> you're still an employee. Because <laughs> there was no formal resignation process, right? You just kind of shut down your website or stop selling Mm -hmm. product. Um, To be quite honest, I might still be on their roster.
2: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: It's also, I think, very social for a lot of people.
2: Even if they are breaking even, I think it it could be something they genuinely enjoy and don't mind that they're breaking even.
0: Yeah. And if it's it's something that your friend group enjoys, like Tupperware, for instance, Mm -hmm. or The Pampered Chef, it's a great way to leverage your network and see... People meet new people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're hosting parties, usually you're taking it at a deficit. So if you're breaking even.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's I've so never broke
0: even at a party. <laughs> snacks, <laughs> drinks. So many snacks. Okay. I'm going to talk about just about a couple of the most famous food-related MLMs. And I know that we did briefly touch on this at the end of our last episode, but and I know you just also mentioned Pampered Chap, but are there any others mm-hmm. that immediately come to your mind?
2: Yeah. So Epicure is a spice company mm-hmm. that I've seen a lot of people from my high school. so <laughs> <laughs> And Arbon is one that is not technically a food company, but they have all these like diet related products that I see pushed on social media all the time, mm-hmm. and they make me cringe.
0: Yes, and that is one of the strangest things that I found in this research was that there are so many companies very similar to that where they're selling supplements and and things like that that are making it huge. And I I don't really understand what it is about nutrition supplements that people would prefer to buy them, I guess, from somebody else in this type of way versus at Shoppers Drug Mart or... It's interesting. That's interesting. I don't know. Okay. So based on 2019 revenue, the highest earning MLM... In 2019, was a a company called Amway. Have you heard of them? Wow. No, actually. Okay. Neither had I. But they were founded in 1959 and they apparently sell health, beauty, and home care products. And these include things like supplements and energy drinks. And they reportedly made 8.8 billion USD in 2019. Okay. And that's 11.2 billion for you Canadians out there.
2: They must not be that common in Canada.
0: I, I do think that they have a presence in Canada, but yeah, you're right. You're probably right. It's probably less. I bet so it's than... more in the states. Mm-hmm. But a lot of a lot of the brands that were on the list, I didn't even like the top brands. I didn't really recognize. So I picked out a couple that I I recognize that I think you might as well. Mm-hmm. And the second one here is Herbalife, and it was number four on the list, and they earned four point nine billion in 2019. Uh, they were founded in 1980, and they employ just under 9,000 people, and they also sell a lot of dietary supplements.
2: Yep, they do. Someone sent me a picture on Instagram the other day and was like, hey, what do you think about these products? I'm thinking about buying them for my friend. And it was Herbalife. Mm-hmm. And some of the claims were just like, this drink will burn 80 to 100 calories mm-hmm. was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, that's
0: not true. <laughs> Are you running while you drink it? <laughs>
2: I don't want to get into the details of it, but some of the claims were so outlandish to me. And and clearly, there was no sources on the page. There was no um, explanation of how scientifically that could be possible. Mm-hmm. It was just like these outlandish claims. And um, yeah, I wasn't too happy. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a fine line because I I don't see any issue with taking certain dietary supplements, especially being... A female in your baby producing years, mm-hmm. <laughs> because there are definitely nutrients like iron and folate that are necessary. But again, just look into the claims on your dietary supplements.
2: For sure. There's nothing wrong with supplementation, especially if you need it. But the one I'm specifically thinking of, and I will absolutely not name names or anything, but it was an energy supplement. That burned 80 to 100 calories. Yeah. What like is Those it, what two is that things giant? don't make sense. If you're burning 100 calories of energy, which isn't possible from consuming something, unless it's eating away at the lining of your stomach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't give you energy then. By definition, it takes, it depletes your energy. Yeah, that's so true. <sighs> it just doesn't make sense in terms of physics. And, anyways, I was really happy that the, someone r- reached out to me and I thought it was really nice. And, yeah. Um but just be mindful of these claims, please. <laughs>
0: yes. Talk to a dietitian. Yes, they're great at things like this. Okay, another company, Tupperware, which we've talked about a couple times, but they I mean, made an estimated quality such good quality. Um, such good quality. <laughs> they made an estimated 2 billion in revenue and they were 11, number 11 on this list. And okay. I don't think we need to explain what Tupperware is. I feel like It is a household brand name like Kleenex where even if something's not Tupperware, I refer to it as being Tupperware. The Tupperware drawer. Yes.
2: (laughs) Mine is not filled with Tupperware. It's filled with, like, Ikea brand (laughs) stuff, but I still call it the Tupperware drawer.
0: Yes, and I I do own quite a bit of this stuff because one of my um, cousins actually works for Tupperware. So sometimes I get the stuff that she doesn't want, which is amazing, But the company was founded in 1942, and currently on their website, it says that you can become a Tupperware representative for as low as $20. Uh, But this doesn't include any product. It's just the personalized selling website. So I'm assuming it's for somebody who's already behind Tupperware 100%, probably has a lot of it. But with this MLM, you do make 35% of your sales, which is pretty good. And I'm thinking we should start our own dietetics after dark Tupperware (laughs) business. (laughs) Could we brand it?
2: We stick Dietetics After Dark on our containers. 100% I would do it if we could do that. That'd be awesome.
0: (laughs) Okay. And then last but not least, in terms of the ones that I'm going to be talking about here, uh, number 30 on the list was Arbon International at $545 million in revenue in 2019. And I know that we both mentioned receiving messages from these reps uh, and whatnot. So to be honest, I was actually kind of surprised that they weren't higher on the list because I feel like in terms of the four that I've just mentioned now, uh, I hear about them the most currently.
2: Yes, same. I think they might just be more
0: current and maybe have a bigger social media presence. Yeah, possibly. That's a good call. Um, So Arbonne was founded in 1980, and they sell things like vegan skincare, cosmetics, and nutrition products. But yeah, just to kind of conclude this section, I do feel like there's kind of a fine line between regular your average business models, MLM's and pyramid schemes because I feel like most businesses, especially with sales and stuff like that, they do still have somewhat of an MLM or pyramid schemey structure. And I just wanted to like briefly mention the fact that two of my previous sales jobs, like sales companies that I worked for, there were referral amounts so you could earn referral income by bringing people into the company if they were hired. So I just feel like there's a gray, fuzzy area there where it's like, at what point is that pyramid scheme
2: Well, because you're making a salary. So you're being paid to work for this company, Mm -hmm. regardless of if you bring people in or not. So it's not
0: just based, dependent on who I bring in. Yes.
2: You are not, like, your livelihood is enhanced if you can bring someone in, but it's not dependent. For sure. That's true. All right, that was that was really well done. And (laughs) yeah, I think it's important to, like, MLMs are legal, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they're great, and it also doesn't mean they're they're awful. Like some a very small minority, but some people do find success or just enjoy it.
0: Absolutely. And if it is something that you enjoy, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. If you can make a a good income, or even if you can't and you just like doing it, there's nothing wrong with that. Just don't get caught up in a pyramid scheme. And question
2: supplements and nutrition products that are sold through MLMs. Just ask questions about them. Mm-hmm. That's all I'll say. Good takeaway. It- <laughs> <laughs> I'm still kind of frustrated by that like <laughs> energy supplement that burns calories. It just like physics,
0: it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, that is a mind-blowing one. Can you <laughs> send me a link to that? I'm curious to... Yeah, okay. I'll send you the screenshot.
2: <laughs> it was a screenshot. It was someone's, like, handmade promotional gotcha, item. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So it didn't look like it was actually from the company. I should say that. That's important. It didn't <laughs> look like Arbonne, uh, like, branded content. So maybe that's not even their claim. Possibly. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's do this. <laughs> On to the scandal for the day, which is an actual pyramid scheme. So here you'll really be able to see the difference between a pyramid scheme and an MLM. And it is lightly food themed Mm -hmm. because I'm going to tell you about a dinner party themed pyramid scheme that I learned about on an HBO docuseries called Murder on
0: Middle Beach. You've seen it, right, Becca? Yeah, I think I recommended it to you, actually.
2: I think you (laughs) might have. No, it was my idea. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) It's so good. It's really really like one of my, one of the best whodunits I've seen in a while, like throughout the whole thing, you're on your toes, you think it's one person, then you think it's the next person, then you think it's another person, and it's just a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. So everyone should definitely go watch it. It is the true story of a son, Madison Hamburg, who is investigating the cold case murder of his own mother, Barbara Hamburg. And it's a wild ride, as you can imagine. Very emotional. Mm -hmm. So there will not be any major spoilers in this episode, but I will be discussing the contents of episode two of Murder on Middle Beach, and it's called Rooms and Tables. And specifically, I'm going to be telling you all
0: about a pyramid scheme called the gifting tables, which are fascinating, by the way. I remember in that episode, I was just like, what the heck is this? I know to be quite honest, I was like, I probably would have fallen into this pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's a great idea.
2: It's really <laughs> easy to see how people would have gotten convinced and gotten enticed, and especially when you set the context, which like I'm gonna get into it all, but like same it seems relatively innocent from the outside, mm-hmm. like when you're just you know getting a sense of what it is. It seems relatively innocent, it seems like there's a huge payoff and you get this circle of friendship. Mm-hmm. So, and you get dinner parties, <laughs> which is the best it's part like, of it. From the outside, it seems like a win, 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 win. But then when we get into it, it's not, it's not all, um, it's not all appetizers and desserts. <laughs> okay. So the gifting tables are nothing new. They have operated under many different names like the Blessing Loom, the Circle Game, Money Board, Christmas Wheel, Blessing Wheel, Secret Sister, and The Gifting Cloud, which was actually a recent Canadian iteration that I found. Hmm. And it's all the same game, rebranded under different names. So the basic idea is that you gift money, and that word gift is really important um, because you can't be buying your way in, because that would make it more formal. So the gifting portion is very key in terms of taxes. Hmm. And then in order to get your money back with a significant return on investment, you have to continue to bring people into the game. So if you don't bring people in,
0: you will not get your money back and more. it's that recruitment piece that is typical to a pyramid scheme. Exactly.
2: So the gifting tables pyramid scheme, which I'm going to focus on today, took place along the Connecticut shoreline in New Haven County. And one thing that I learned from this episode is that Connecticut has a silent C. It's spelt Connecticut. Wow. Did you know that? No, I just I was like every single time I was spelling it wrong and autocorrect would be like, no, it's Connecticut. And I was like, what are we sure about that? I'm positive. Wow. You can Google it. I Googled it today because I was like, there's no way it's Connecticut but it's a silent sea.
0: Oh, a simple Canadian's learning so much. Connecticut, but it's Connecticut.
2: Okay. So what exactly is a gifting table and what the heck does it have to do with food? Let's find out. The gifting tables are branded as women's empowerment groups, friendship circles, sisterhoods. And so they draw people in with this premise of women helping women while also giving back to the community. So... Like you said, it seems innocent. I can see why it would be appealing to many people at the time, especially because this story takes us all the way back to 2008 when the United States was in the midst of the subprime mortgage crisis, AKA the Great Recession. And so this was the most severe economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And people all across America were struggling to make ends meet. Unemployment rates were high and people were feeling desperate. And so women nationwide were actually joining gifting tables at higher rates than ever before. Both to battle the emotionally taxing effects of the recession, but also to find a sense of sisterhood. And so like this was all really surprising to me because I was like, oh, this must be a Connecticut thing. There's no way this happens all over the place. This whole structure of the gifting tables is nothing new. Mm hmm. That
0: is fascinating. Yeah, because I'd never heard of even this type of scheme before. No, but like when I think about it right now during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. I would love the opportunity to be a part of a friendship circle.
2: Yeah, the friendship (laughs) part, but don't don't speak too soon about the actual (laughs) gifting table. (laughs) Okay, ahead of myself. Okay, so what exactly is a gifting table? This is where the food part comes in, and honestly, even this part is cute.
0: Okay, we're so, not promoting gifting tables we're here. not. Let's just make no. that very clear from the get-go. Yeah, the story will turn. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> but so a gifting table has four models in the pyramid, and it's modeled after a dinner party. So level one is the bottom level, and it's made up of the appetizers. And these are the women responsible for literally bringing appetizers to that week's meeting. The second level is the soups and salads. And as the name implies, they bring the soups and salads. Third level is the entree. Um, And then the final level is the dessert. And of course, they bring the entrees and the dessert. So these dinner parties were probably amazing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially because it's pyramid. So the appetizer level has eight people. That's eight appetizers. Soup and salad level has four people. Entrees has two. And the dessert position is the coveted position. And it's held by just one person. So if you want to join a table, if you want to become an appetizer, you have to gift your way in. And the gift to join a table was $5,000. a lot. So to get your way... It's a lot of money. It's a big chunk. And yeah, so to, to get your way into this appetizer level, you have to give $5,000 to the table, which will eventually, once all appetizer positions are filled, go to the dessert position. So the person holding the dessert position Will get forty thousand dollars when the table is filled. Okay. Okay. So five thousand from each of the eight appetizer people. Mm-hmm. So five times eight. Sorry, five thousand times eight. Forty thousand dollars going to the dessert person. And that's forty
0: thousand for one dinner party.
2: For one filled
0: gifting table. Gifting table dinner dinner party. Yes. Quick question. Is it typically the Person in the dessert position who is hosting the party, or does it kind of just depend?:
2: The dessert position that
0: is hosting the dinner party.: Okay I was going to say it make they more typically sense if we have a lot of power. Okay. I was going say make more sense if it was the entree person, because I feel like entrees are hard to transport, but they definitely <laughs> are.
2: <laughs> Next time you're in a gifting table, bring that up.: <laughs> So once the gifting table has been filled, the40,000 dollars has been given to the dessert person, everybody can advance a level. So the people who are in the appetizer spot move up to the soup and salad spot. The soup and salads move up to the entree. The entree moves up to the dessert and the dessert person exits the table to either join another table or, you know, move on with their life. Okay. So in order for the gifting table to keep working properly, the appetizer spots need to keep being filled. Mm-hmm. So so the appetizers that moved up to the soup and salad spot, they are now responsible for bringing in people to fill the appetizer spots again. And of course, with every new person, that's another $5,000. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Do you see the problem yet? I absolutely <laughs> see a problem, but for some reason, this type of pyramid scheme excites me. I think you're still into <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> I can't help it. It's like a dinner party where you could make money. It sounds fantastic. But I know that it's bad for so many reasons.
2: Well, one reason is that in order for everyone to get their money back, you need to keep bringing women in. Mm -hmm. That's the only way for this gifting table to keep perpetuating and to have people make more and more money. Mm -hmm. It's not a circle. It's a pyramid, right? So eventually the people at the bottom will get screwed over because it's not
0: an infinite process mm-hmm. and if you can't find people to bring in then you're sol exactly so i'm going to take you all the
2: way back to new haven county in connecticut in 2008 the stock markets have plummeted low by Flo Rida and t-pain is number one on the charts <laughs> remember that <laughs> Good tune. (laughs) And the gifting tables are absolutely thriving in New Haven County, thanks to Donna Bellow. So Donna Bellow decided to join the gifting tables because she was a divorced mother of two and she had started her own business and she could use the money. And throughout her time with the gifting tables, she actually rotated through the tables at least five times. So if you do the math, that's a minimum of $200,000 just
0: from hosting these dinner parties. Okay, quick, 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 quick question. Um, Mm -hmm. When somebody leaves a gifting table as a dessert, do they have to then join another gifting table as an appetizer? Or do they start somewhere? Yes. Okay. So she went through that process five times? Yes. Which means she's really effective at bringing people in. Gotcha.
2: So in the Murder on Middle Beach documentary, Donna is interviewed and she talks about the gifting tables almost fondly, like she's remembering this time in her life where she was on top of the world and she insists that the gifting tables were a network of women just looking to help each other out and raise money for different people and give money to organizations in the community. And she really doesn't admit or act uh, like she was doing anything wrong. Okay. Okay. So another major player in the gifting tables, Donna was like the main, she was like the queen pin, the ultimate dessert. Um, Another major player in the gifting tables was Jill Platt. So Jill met Donna through the gifting tables, which at the time were being hosted at Donna's house. And Jill ended up becoming another major figure in the Connecticut ring. So at this point, you might be wondering, because I was, and I know you are actually, is this whole gifting table thing really that bad. It seems innocent. It seems kind of fun. It certainly seems profitable. And one of the major reasons that it actually is that bad is because the money that's being exchanged is called a gift to take advantage of a loophole and avoid paying taxes on this massive chunk of income. Mm-hmm. And that's what women who are entering were being told, but it wasn't actually the case. So turns out you do actually have to claim and pay taxes on the, these
0: very large sums of income. Okay. So it's tax fraud. So this is where I feel like lines are very fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Because if you receive an actual gift, mm-hmm. you don't need to pay tax on it, right? Sorry for questioning you.
2: No, it's a good question. But I think it's more like this, it isn't a gift. hmm it's an investment because you get that five thousand dollars back. Right, right. So it's it's they're calling it a gift, that doesn't mean it actually is a gift.
0: And the reason that they were thinking this likely is because they weren't working as a formal business, totally. even though they technically were. There is a whole set of rules to joining these gifting
2: tables, and one of them is that you can't tell anyone, like right. you can't even tell your partner.
0: I remember that from the uh, documentary.
2: And you can't refer to it as anything other than a gift. Um, And like, it's it's clearly more than a gift if there's a set of rules that are involved with your gift.
0: Yeah. Like, it's a secret society. Yeah. And the reason they clearly didn't want you to tell anybody else was because they didn't want other people to be like, hey, this is a scam. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Okay. So you might also be wondering how this relates back to murder on Middle Beach. Okay, so Barbara Hamburg was a newly divorced mother of two living in Madison, Connecticut, which is part of New Haven County. And despite the fact that her ex-husband was a very wealthy man, he was not paying child support at the time. So Barbara was struggling to support her two children, Madison, uh, the boy who was, he's the one who actually made the documentary, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and his younger sister, Allie. Jill Platt was Barbara's aunt by marriage. And she had been helping her through this tough time and ended up inviting her to join the gifting tables. Now, shortly before Barbara joined the gifting tables, she had actually started drinking heavily and she was charged with a DUI and she ended up going to rehab and getting sober and started attending AA meetings for addiction support, uh, which was great for her. And she actually really thrived in AA. But when Jill Platt offered... Barbara, the chance to join the gifting tables as well. She saw an opportunity to not only make money, but also to find another uh, source of that emotional friendship support. And so Jill invited Barbara, Barbara accepted, and Barbara excelled. (laughs) She was very outgoing. She was a really just like a beautiful personality. People liked being around her, and she was great at convincing more people to come into the tables. Barbara quickly climbed to the dessert rankings herself and she moved through multiple tables and she actually ended up becoming a Donna of her own ring of gifting tables. So now there's like this massive network of gifting tables all across New Haven County and it's like divided into thirds. So Donna has this kind of OG gifting circle ring and then Jill has her own section and Barbara has her own section and they're like the three
0: masterminds. And so, for instance, Donna, who Mm -hmm. might have multiple gifting tables under her, is she making any income off of these additional gifting tables that work within her social network?
2: That's a great question. I didn't find anything that said that. Okay. But I also think that there's quite a bit that's still not known about how these operated. That's fair. For sure. So, who knows? There was no paper trail, right? There was a very a slight email trail Mm -hmm. and a couple Facebook messages, but like the whole thing is still pretty mysterious.
0: Cause you used to bring
2: 5,000 cash. It was all cash. Yes. It was all cash. Yeah. That was an essential part of it. No e-transfers. Okay. So you've got these three major players. You've got Donna, Jill and Barbara, and they're operating this massive ring of gifting tables at this point. Thousands of women. Like this is not small. This is huge. And remember, the only way for these tables to keep functioning is for people to keep bringing in new people or new appetizers. And Jill, Jill Platt in the documentary says that her personal rule was that you could not bring someone into a table that couldn't personally afford to lose $5,000. So it had to be someone who could, who had some wealth, who could afford it And also had their own personal network that they could continue to bring in individuals with money. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to go to someone that, A, doesn't have a lot of their own personal capital, but maybe they don't have a huge social network. Maybe their social network doesn't have a lot of money. And those people, for Jill, were off limits. On the other hand, Barbara, it seems, took an approach that was frowned upon, and she invited people from all walks of life. So people that absolutely could not afford to lose Mm $5,000. And she eventually invited Jill's own sister, Tracy, who did not have a lot of money and could not afford to lose $5,000. And this caused a huge rift between Jill and Barbara. So this is when their tables like formally separated. So Jill had her section, Barbara had her section. Barbara also this was majorly frowned upon, recruited many members from her AA group to join the gifting tables. Yeah, that's not
0: a good, not a good call.
2: It's an, it's a bit of an abuse of trust because you form this really, I I think, strong bond in AA groups and, you know, it's a place of honesty and vulnerability and then to be recruiting people into a pyramid scheme from that group uh, was looked upon very poorly
0: yeah. And and you might also be dealing with people who have addictive yes. personality traits and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah, I could see how that would be frowned upon.
2: Yes, definitely. So in the Murder on Middle Beach documentary, Madison, the son, Barbara's son, talks to Senator Richard Blumenthal. And he learns that as the tables grew, people became more desperate to join. Remember, this is during the recession. People are having a really tough time. So you had women joining, not telling their partners that they were joining, selling their boats, selling their cars, refinancing their homes, asking their parents for early inheritance, asking their children for money just to get this $5,000 entrance fee to enter a table. And Mm -hmm. as the tables grew, your chances of getting your money back became smaller and smaller. So... The other really painful part of these tables is that they operated on an exploitation of trust, like we just talked about with the AA, because you were often being asked to join by a friend or a family member. And so Mm -hmm. this loss of the significant loss of money was combined with a betrayal of trust that was leaving a very large network of people that were really hurt by the gifting tables. Right. So now it's not so uh, cute, is it? <laughs> no, it's You're not. like, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. <laughs> so Jill and Barbara formally ended their friendship and I guess professional, quote unquote, professional relationship around February of 2008 because Jill was angry that Barbara was inviting people that couldn't afford to lose money. And in March of 2008, Barbara Hamburg was found murdered in her very own yard. Mm-hmm. Her body was actually discovered by her sister, Conway Beach, and her daughter, Allie Hamburg. And at the time of her violent murder, she was in the dessert position. So she was ready to receive $40,000. Barbara's Murder... Future editing Sarah here. I said I wouldn't spoil this documentary and then I spoiled all of it. So we've bleeped that out for you. And while there's no definitive link to the gifting tables, I can't help but think it's, it's a little fishy. Uh, and there's a potential connection there. But... To hear all the different theories as to how and why and by who Barbara Hamburg was murdered, you have to go watch the full documentary because it's way
0: too much for this podcast, and it's just such a wild ride. Yeah. The son does an amazing job. And it also, it just has this this eerie feeling because it's a son trying to solve his own mother's murder.
2: Yep. It makes it extra uh, tragic and there's so much trauma and it's emotional and it's
0: compelling. Yeah,
2: he's it's compelling. He's amazing. He's cute. He it's amazing. Yeah.
0: He kind of looks like Zac
2: Efron, Zac Efron vibes. Um, and remember that with these gifting tables, people were desperate. So it, authorities estimate that over a thousand women were duped out of millions of dollars. This is not small. This is no longer cute dinner parties. Mm-mm. It's pretty dark. So when Barbara was murdered, Jill Platt alleges that the police confiscated her computer. And that was how they ended up finding all the information about the gifting tables, like through emails and Facebook messages that they found. So I'm not sure if that's how they actually found out, because Barbara actually had some formal complaints filed about her already. Anonymous complaints. But it probably gave them more insight into who the major players were within the tables and so the table's legs came off and they came <laughs> crashing down, which meant a lot of people lost even more money. So both Donna Bello and Jill Platt went to trial. The two were found guilty of wire fraud, filing false tax returns and conspiring to defraud the IRS. Which and the wire fraud is related to them just chatting about this over email
0: So it's not the actual transaction of Mm -hmm. the money. It's just conversations about it.
2: Yes. Because they can't
0: necessarily trace all the cash. Yes, exactly. Which has probably worked in their benefit.
2: Yeah, it absolutely did. You'll see. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Donna was originally sentenced to six years in prison and Jill to 4.5 years. And the women both had to pay restitution totaling 32,000 to five women who lost money in the tables. So thousands of women lost money. They only had to pay restitution to five. five. Hmm. And Donna Bello had to pay an additional $15,000 fine. But they both appealed their convictions and they ended up having their sentences reduced to 48 months for Donna Bello and 30 months for Jill Platt. And they served them. And now they're both out of jail, which hmm. is like this whole situation. This situation is bad. People got exploited People were hurt, but the line between criminal and victim is like a little blurry here. So like at what point, if you're in the table, are you a criminal and are you a victim? Because if you're at the bottom of that pyramid scheme, you also joined expecting to make $40,000,
0: which means you're contributing to a pyramid scheme. Absolutely. And I I don't think that their intentions of even starting this scheme were bad. Like it does sound like it started out like a sisterhood and changed very rapidly once other people started getting involved that weren't part of their immediate circle.
2: Yeah, totally. All right. So that's pretty much it for the Connecticut gifting tables. But like when I was watching, watching this documentary, like I said, this idea was so new to me. I've clearly never been asked to join. I never, (laughs) it was mind blowing. I was like, literally I was on the couch and I think I transitioned to the floor and was like leaning into the TV. Like I was (laughs) so into it. But these sort of schemes and groups are nothing new. In fact, many cultures around the world have had their own traditional version of the gifting tables, but they're typically legal and they act more as a form of community support. So the most popular traditional variation I could find is called a susu, and it originated in West Africa and the Caribbean as something called a Rotating Savings and Credit Association or a ROSCA. And this is where a group of individuals agreed to pool their resources and save money and borrow together. And they really genuinely support each other in this form of like friendly banking. And the basic principle is that each member of the group makes a contribution to a money pool each, each time period. So that could be like each week or each month. And then each period, the total contributions are dispersed to a single group member. So someone gets a lump sum. And the recipient changes each period. So basically, you're paying into this group. You'll all eventually get a lump sum payout, but there's no interest charged and there's no profit. It's more of a savings scheme. So it's like you pay, let's say you pay in $100 every week. And then by the end of the 10-week period, you get $1,000, but you get it as a lump sum, which helps people save. And it also helps people start businesses or like buy cars or things like that. Okay. Okay. I can see the benefits of something like that. Well, it's it's they became popular in places that don't have formal banking systems right. or don't have well-established formal banking systems. So um, I think it was born out of necessity, but it was estimated that 75% of Caribbean immigrants in New York participated in Susus in the 1980s. And mm. that was the reason that people were able to become entrepreneurial and find community support. It, it was a positive thing and, and it's definitely taken on some negative spins. So there is an instance recently, actually, where the traditional susu evolved to become a pyramid scheme that actually misappropriated the name susu. So now it kind of gets lumped into this whole gifting tables thing, even though that's okay. not what it originally was. Gotcha. Um, so actually during the Black Lives Matter movement, people will take advantage of anything. It's disgusting. So during the Black Lives Matter movement... There were individuals trying to take advantage of the Susu name and using it alongside the Black Lives Matter movement to entice people to join and promising profit, right? So basically the whole reason I'm saying this is that if a scheme invites you and promises profit simply for giving them money, like without any products involved, that's a major red flag.
0: Huge red flag. That's
2: the pyramid scheme red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a traditional SUSU would not promise you profit. You just get the amount that you put in. It will come back to you later, but as a large sum that can help you, you know, start your business or whatever. Right. And these schemes are still out there and active today. They move through many communities, including social media. So... There was one on social media recently called The Blessing Loom, and it would arrive via direct message on Facebook or Instagram and would offer you an opportunity to, quote, bless others while earning money, end quote, and would ask for a $100 payment via PayPal or Venmo. So do not <laughs> send money to someone who DMs you. Um, uh, That's a pyramid scheme. Okay. Mm, I have a lot of questions about this. Did people actually buy in? Two. The Susu, the blessing loom? The blessing loom. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. active. These are active ones, like ones that were busted, basically. I think that these are not widely published because they don't want people to know about them. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not a lot of info. Like, when I would Google these things, a lot of the same information would come up, but not a lot of detailed information. Gotcha. And certainly not names. I think they also want to protect victims of fraud. Right. And And pyramid schemes. Yeah. So there wasn't a ton of information, but the blessing loom was relatively recent and these things pop up. It seems like they pop up all the time, all over. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean they're super successful, but. Oh, I'm just trying to think like, I would definitely ignore a message like that that came. I ignore messages like this constantly.
0: Yeah. But what, is there a way to report a message like that? I think you could report an
2: account. Hmm. Like if someone's sending you messages like this, you could probably report them.
0: And then there's the issue where you might receive a message from somebody who has zero followers, zero posts, yes. and it's almost like it's an empty, vacant account that's probably used to initiate the scam. I get so many of those. I get a few, too.
2: Not necessarily scam ones, but, like, just zero followers,
0: zero posts. Hey, would you like to sell our t-shirts? Like, things like that. I'm
2: like, and then no. it's like it
0: guides you to a different link that has nothing to do with that actual account. Which is so bizarre to me because they'll guide you to a different website or um a different Instagram account. Yeah. Not the their own, saying that they'd like to work with you or you know what I mean?
2: I do. I never click on the link. I have. I <laughs> fell for it. You would totally join
0: a gifting table. <laughs> I, I like hate to say it. I probably no, like before knowing the repercussions, the terrible things that happen. Mm-hmm. I feel like it just sounds like a fun time. $5,000 is too much. $5,000 is huge. It's way too much. I wouldn't fall for that. Yeah. But like if it was like $50 to go to a fun dinner party, like networking event, I feel like, yeah, it would be easy to fall for something like that yes. because what's the difference between like a social mm-hmm. gathering where you have to pay a certain amount for dinner? Yep.
2: Or like a to dinner that's raising money for charity. Yeah. Especially since these were often like they would donate. These gifting tables would sometimes donate,
0: and I was going to say, like, yeah, they they did highlight charities and mm-hmm. and things like that as well. So it, there's just a very fine line. I obviously would not join the gifting table now, mm-hmm. but it's a very interesting scam, and I don't know. I feel like there's a positive. It, it started from a positive place, is my assumption.
2: Yeah, I'd, I I like I would like to think so, but I think at some at some point it gets corrupt. When you've pocketed two two $200,000 untaxed based off of your friends and people start because people were complaining to the people leading these tables. They were like, look, I can't make this money back. It's not going to happen. And so that's when you start to know. I think there absolutely is a point where it went from being innocent to being criminal.
0: For sure. And as you said earlier, like it is kind of also different or difficult to differentiate Between somebody who decided to join a pyramid scheme knowingly versus them being a victim of the pyramid scheme, Mm -hmm. it's difficult to differentiate. It is. Totally. Because if they made money because of it and they're not complaining, does that not make them a victim?
2: It's not a clear-cut situation, that's for sure.
0: No, it's not. So if
2: you're listening to this and you're thinking you might be involved in a pyramid scheme, don't be embarrassed. (laughs) Get out now. now. (laughs) Step one, get out now. Step two, tell the authorities. But really, don't be embarrassed because clearly it's not so clear. There are thousands of people who get sucked into pyramid schemes, not because they're dumb, not because but because they're being exploited and people who there are people who are good at exploiting people. Yep. That's my take home message. Get out. Don't be embarrassed. (laughs) Call the cops. Okay, so that's actually it for that story. But I have a bonus story that is food related because today we didn't really talk too much about food. I'm excited. Okay. So,
0: didn't know this was coming. I'm
2: hoping that you don't know what this is, but do you know what pine mouth is or pine nut syndrome? No. (laughs) I'm so happy. Okay. So, I learned about this this week. My friend texted me and was like, Hey, have you heard about this? It's so weird. And it is. It's so weird. So, pine nut syndrome or pine mouth is when it, it affects a small minority of people who eat pine nuts. And get this intense coppery metallic taste in their mouth that can last for weeks. So it's technically called cacoguesia, which means bad taste, or metalloguesia, which means metallic taste. And symptoms develop 12 to 48 hours after eating pine nuts. And they can last up to three weeks. Okay. That's bizarre. The flavor has been described like you're sucking on like a handful of pennies. Like, it's really intense and coppery and, like, metal. And the worst part is, whenever you eat or drink something, it gets more intense. So you can't taste anything, basically. It's this really strong metallic flavor. And it's super rare, but it's been well-documented. And scientists don't actually know what causes it. But it is common enough that some pine nut packages carry a warning that says... Some individuals may experience a reaction to eating pine nuts characterized by a lingering or bitter metallic taste.
0: Wow. Isn't that interesting? So there's not much information on it just in terms of what causes it, mm-hmm. but is there any information like does this affect people other than the fact that they have metallic taste in their not mouth? Not at all.
2: So people who experience pine moth have typically no other physical symptoms, there were a couple of cases where, like shortly after the eating the pine nuts, there'd be like a slight nausea, but it would go away like it was kind of a a nothing symptom and mm-hmm. While it seems to be reported most commonly with raw pine nuts, there are documented cases of pine mouth that have occurred from raw cooked or even processed pine nuts, like in pesto,
0: interesting, yeah,
2: but like if you've eaten pine nuts before and you've never had this, you're probably safe, but it is this like rare. Reaction that occurs in a very small percentage of people. But like, can you imagine weeks of this? Such a bizarre, it's not, I don't think it's an allergic reaction. They don't know if it's an allergic reaction or something like that, or genetic predisposition, like how some people like cilantro and some people say it tastes like soap. Like
0: Yeah. And it lasting three weeks, that's a really long time for up to um it's a really long time for something like that to just stick around in your body yes totally um i would be very curious to talk to somebody with pine mouth i know i want to hear more about it
2: i feel bad because i find it like really kind of (laughs) funny but it is such an interesting and unfortunate side effect like losing your taste or having your taste turned into a
0: bad flavor Yeah. Would be really awful. Wow. Sorry. I'm taking all that in.
2: That's (laughs) (laughs) I was afraid you'd know about it because you are like specializing in allergies. And I was like, maybe she's heard of pine mouth. No, I haven't. That's interesting.
0: eh? Very interesting. Thanks for tying that in. No problem. Okay. And I guess last but not least, I have a teaser question for you for our next episode. All right. Let's hear it. All right, Sarah. Do you have a favorite wine? Now this can be wine brand type, mm-hmm. anything.
2: Yeah, I have one wine that is my go-to wine. It's an adobe Sauvignon Blanc, and I prefer it with ice cubes. Please don't hate me. <laughs> it just tastes tragedy. so good.
0: <laughs> do you refrigerate it or do you put it warm over ice? No,
2: I've refriger- I like a really cold, <laughs> like a cold, cold beverage is so good to me. I It's refrigerated, and then I pour that cold wine over my cold ice. That's fair. And it's and so good. And do you kind of like the dilution? I do, actually. Is that part of yeah, it? Yeah, I can sit like... Okay. The first couple sips are obviously not that diluted, but then by the end, I'm like, oh, I'm hydrating too. So it's like it, better for my next morning. I like it. Yeah. What's your favorite wine? Do you have one?
0: Um, so I don't drink too, too much wine, but when I do, uh, I do have a favorite. It's the Bonterra Cab Sauve. And it is, it's an organic wine. And the reason... I have switched over to organic more recently as I find, and I think it's the sulfites, but sometimes when I drink wine, I just Mm -hmm. have a real upset stomach the next day.
2: Yeah, totally. There are some wines that just don't sit well with me. And I can almost tell by flavor, like if this is going to be one that I I honestly, I should look into this more. One of my friends is a wine expert, so I could totally ask her, but like there's certain flavors that just, I know that this wine is not going to make me feel that great the next day. And it might be a quality thing. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for me, this this Bonterra wine, it doesn't upset my stomach as much the next day. So I feel like maybe it is the sulfites because organic wine, you can't add sulfites to. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, it's So totally the sulfites, possible. there are sulfites that occur naturally in the winemaking process that will still be in there, but uh, they don't add additional.
2: Totally. I'm trying to find. I had a Pinot Noir the other day that knocked my socks off, but it's out <laughs> of my budget. Typically, we got it for Christmas.
0: Did you put ice cubes in your
2: Pinot Noir? No, I do not. (laughs) I like a nice light Pinot Noir too. If I'm doing a red, I like it to be like a lighter flavor. Yeah, that's fair. That's it.
0: That's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you learned a thing or two. But I did. That was a great story. Even though I knew it, I like knew part of it. Loved listening to it again. There were tidbits that I did not know. Fascinating. Amazing. All right. We'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at After Dark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com.
2: This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com.